Welcome to the Vineyard Northridge Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our senior pastor, Neil Haney. For more information about our church, visit our website at vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge. So the last time I spoke, uh, that was a sermon. Last, last week, Dennis, Dennis and I read some stuff and shared a little bit, but Last time I spoke, I spoke on, a, on the topic of biblical dying. And so, uh, you know, I talked about how biblical dying is seasonal. Uh, man, you look outside right now and you see these, the, the, the trees. By the end of this month, all those beautiful, colorful leaves will be gone. And they'll just be dead sticks sticking up in the air. And they'll look very dead. Those trees will look very dead. But they're not dead. They're just dormant. They look dead, they feel dead, the winter, you know, the cold, I mean, they're just shivering and shaking in the, but about April, something really amazing happens. They begin to grow the next ring of life. As the sap rises, that ring forms and they put on new leaves and life comes back. And then in a little while, there's fruit that's born. And it's, if those trees have been pruned, the fruit is better and more plentiful than ever. Jesus says, my father will prune you. It feels like dying when he does that. But when it comes back, when you come back, and after your dormancy, and after you, you experience growth, then you begin to produce fruit. And then there's a time of just fruitful peace, and it's awesome. Well, that's, that's how it is with God. We go through seasons of, of, of dying. Jesus said, unless a kernel falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's what we're looking for, right? Right, okay? So then I said, it, uh, you know, dying, biblical dying is seasonal, it becomes in, in, in seasons. God takes us through really hard things. I said it's hard, but I said it's necessary, and as I've just said, it produces fruit. So I talked about the why of biblical dying, and I talked about the how of biblical dying, but this morning I want to talk about the what. The, I'm from the South. I, I pronounce the H, okay? What. My, my kids give me a hard time about that. They say, that is what. So the what of biblical dying. Um, thank you. Um, so, this morning, biblical dying part two. One of the things that uh, John Wimber used to say about the kingdom of God is that there is the already of the kingdom. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. <clears throat> but it won't ever be here in fullness until he returns the second time. Does that make sense? So there's the, there's the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God begins to break into this world where the kingdom of Satan ruled forever, for 3,000 years. And then, then Jesus announces as he begins his public ministry, the kingdom of God is here. But then we understand that the kingdom of God won't be here in its fullness and the kingdom of, of this, the enemy done away with until he returns the second time. And so in, in our lives, as it comes to the whole thing of dying, there's the, the already, we were, we're already dead, but we're also still dying. And I'm going to explain that, okay? I just want to get that out there. And the, the best verse for this that I can find in Scripture is this right here. It's in Hebrews 10, 14, where, where the, the writer of Hebrews, whomever that is, is, is talking about um, what Christ has done that the old covenant couldn't do under the priest and the yearly sacrifices and all that. <clears throat> it says this, By one sacrifice, 
Christ, the word he is referring to Jesus, to Christ, by one sacrifice on the cross, when he shed his blood for us, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, the word perfect and the word holy are pretty much the same word. So here's what's being said. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made you holy forever for those who are being made holy. There's two different realms here. There's the realm of the eternal where there is no time and space. And in Christ Jesus, in the eternal realm, you are perfect. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing to improve on, at least in your spirit. When, when the Holy Spirit comes into your spirit, boom, you're alive and you're perfect. You're perfected in your spirit. But then the Holy Spirit rolls up his sleeve in time and space in your soul, your mind, will, and emotion, and begins to do his work. And we're going to talk about that, okay? There, there's the already, we're already perfected, but there's the, the not yet being perfected in time and space. Okay, so, so here we go. Buckle your seats, belts. This is going to be fun. The Spirit is inside of us, working, working, working to conform us to the image of God. We have died already, guys. We have died to the old Adam. We've died to Adam, the first Adam. You're either one of two places in the spirit, in the spiritual realm. You're either dead in Adam or you're alive in the last Adam, who is Christ. You're dead in the first Adam, Adam, <laughs> or you're alive in the last Adam, Christ. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they took the forbidden fruit. What did God say? He said, what did God say when he said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely... Did they drop dead? No, I think Adam actually lived to be almost a 1,000 years old. I think he was the third oldest man. Methuselah, of course, was the oldest. But he was only like 10, 15 years younger than Methuselah when he died. Eve died before him, which is very unusual for the wife to die first for some reason in our culture. But anyway, she went first. But Adam lived 943 years or something like that. But in the moment that he ate that fruit, that forbidden fruit, he died spiritually. Eve died spiritually. And they spawned a race of spiritually dead people. And the moment that you accept Christ, you die out of Adam and you come alive into Christ. And he fills you with his spirit and you're now alive. And so the old Adam is dead I mean, you're dead to the old Adam. You're, you're no longer in his family tree. In, in Adam, all die. In Christ, all have been made alive. Boom. John, Romans 5, I believe it's verse 12. All right. But now I want to talk about the second thing that, that uh, we have died to, and that's the flesh. We died to the flesh. So good, yeah. So, but, but look what it says here. We've died to, are dying to, the flesh. The already but not yet. So in, in the, in the uh, mind and heart of God, as he looks at us, he sees that we are dead to the flesh, but the Holy Spirit's inside of us making us dead to the flesh. In, in, in Christ, we've been co-crucified to, to, to sin, to death, to, to, to the law, to the world, but there's a, there's a dying process in this time and space. So what happens is, is that we come to Christ and, and we experience the new birth 
and we experience this great honeymoon period that can last from six days to about six months. It's about as long as it goes. And sin can't touch me, man. I don't know why I ever even fooled that stuff in the first place because it was, it was no good, no fun. And now I'm in Christ. And let me just tell you, older Christian, you, you've lost your zeal. You should be like me because I'm passionate for the Lord. I don't sin anymore. You sin. I don't sin. They know everything. I mean, it's like a teenager. I mean, honestly, they know everything. New Christians know everything. Until one day they wake up and they don't feel that loving feeling. I've lost that loving feeling, you know. And all of a sudden, they're face to face with this big, hairy temptation that they thought that they had overcome. And they can't get past it. And they stumble, they sin, and they're like, oh, oh, that's awful. I thought I was over that stuff. I thought I was over that stuff. I thought that, that I was beyond you know, lust. I thought I was beyond like lying. I thought I was beyond cheating. I thought I was beyond stealing. I thought I was beyond whatever the thing is, whatever the, you know, you name your garden variety sin. And I thought I was, I was over that. Well, what happens is we begin to realize that there's something in us that still isn't in line with God. And, and, and it's something that still wants to exert itself. Let me tell you what I think the flesh is. Because it's not the old man. It's not the old Adam. That's, that's already been taken care of. And too many people use those things interchangeably. That is a huge theological, biblical mistake. Because the flesh and the old Adam are not the same. The old Adam is Adam. It's his bloodline. The flesh is what we deal with in this broken body, in this broken world, in our broken, damaged emotions with our, with our neuropathways that don't get healed just because we get saved. Do you understand that? You have certain neuropathways that predispose pre, um, you, thank you, predispose you to certain sin, you know, acts of sin, certain bad, like what do they call it in AA, stinking thinking. Yeah, they're neuropathways, they're grooves in your brain that predispose you to acts of sin. And that doesn't go away just because you get saved. Look, I've known people that were alcoholics and drug addicts. And they got delivered from drugs instantly, but they struggled with alcohol for years. Like, why is that? You know, they, they, they got over this. I mean, the Holy Spirit delivered them instantly from this problem, but they struggled on for years in another area of their lives. I don't, you know, it's because we live in a fallen world, in a broken body. Our, our minds are not renewed yet. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our wills are not fully surrendered Although we've given our lives to Christ, our wills are still sort of ours and sort of his. There are days that they're more his than, than ours, and there are days that they're more ours than his. You, you, anybody experience that? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Then there's the emotions. We are broken, guys. That's one of the things that I am, I am so passionate about is healing people's damaged emotions from traumatic Memories and things that happened in the past, you can be healed from that stuff, set free from demonic oppression that come in because of those traumatic wounds and, and you know, memories that plague us and, and, and PTSD almost. My, yeah, so anyway, blah, blah, blah. We still have those things. And the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, and like a garden, he starts weeding. He starts pulling out those things that shouldn't be there. 
I used to talk about, uh, there was an illustration I would use about a, a clockmaker who was walking, he was an old Swiss clock, clockmaker, and he was walking past a, a dump pile on his way home, and he noticed that on top of the, of the, the, the crappy junk pile, there was, there was an old clock, and it was one of his that he had made 30 years earlier. And now it was sitting on top of the trash heap, and, and he had spent hours and days working on that clock. It was a masterpiece in his mind. But he saw it sitting in, with all the you know, eggs and tomatoes and whatever else is in the junk. You know. And so he walks over, and he, he lovingly bends down and brushes that stuff with his hands. I mean, he just gets his hands dirty. You know, Jesus had to get his hands dirty when he came after us. And so he wipes all that stuff away and he picks up his old clock and he looks at it and it's beautiful. And the moment that he pulls, that, that clock was destined for destruction. They were going to burn that trash pile within the, the next few days. But in the moment he pulls that off the trash pile, it's now redeemed. It's now been saved. Is it any different than when it was sitting on the trash pile? For all, I mean, some of that goop got wiped off. But for the most part, it's pretty much the same. The only difference is the position. It's now in the position of being saved and redeemed. And he's on his way home with this old clock that was a masterpiece to him to sit on his workbench to begin to clean it off and take out the broken pieces and repair the, 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 the bent and damaged pieces. And he keeps working on that thing. And it might take him months until... It's keeping time. It's not running too slow, and it's not running too fast, and it's working like it should, and it's all polished up and oiled up, and, and, and it's, it's now, once again, the masterpiece it was created to be. That's you and me, folks. And it takes a while for us to be, for our bent places to be straightened out and our broken places to be replaced, and, and, and for our, our gunk and goop and stinky stuff to be washed off and cleaned off and and us, us to be oiled up where we're functioning, where we're not walking, you know, we're not too fast, we're not too slow, we're, wa we're, we're walking in step with the Spirit. That's what's being done here. And so the flesh has to be dealt with. There's another aspect to the flesh, and that's this. The flesh wants to tell us what to do. Our addictions, our coping mechanisms, our neuropathways want to tell us to do things when we know we shouldn't. But Jesus, I mean, the, the, if you read Galatians, it says that, and, and the, the Romans 13, 8.13 says this, we are no longer obligated to live according to the flesh. We're not obligated. We don't, have a, we don't have that obligation anymore. We can walk according to the Spirit. Galatians 5 Walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, because the deeds of the flesh are, you know, strife and envy and greed and, and acts, uh, outbursts of anger and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, control. And he says, get in step with the Spirit. Well, getting in step with the Spirit is cooperating with the Spirit. You and I don't have the capacity to change ourselves. You understand that? That's not your job. Your job is to put yourself in the position to let the Holy Spirit change you. And you can fight that, and you can goof off, and, and you can just, you know, never have a quiet time, never read the Word, never pray, never, never do anything, you know, come to church when you feel like it, and, and never open yourself to this kind of, of teaching or whatever, 
and you'll limp along for decades and not grow and not change. My, my friend Kerry Stockett said, you can either sit on the front row and take notes, or you can sit in the back of Jesus' classroom and you know, take notes, or you can sit in the back and throw spit wads. But wh- whichever position you choose to take or anything in between determines how fast you're going to grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. Because all you can do is listen and cooperate and be open. The Holy Spirit has to do the work. Does that make sense? So our flesh is like, there's this beautiful illustration in, in uh, the Green Letters uh, by Miles Sanford. He says that it's like the flesh is like a sea captain. They're, you know, the boat's out to sea, and somehow they get a telegraph that the sea captain, the captain of the ship, is actually, uh, is actually guilty of crimes, of treason, and they need the crew needs to to bind him to the mast of the ship until they get to port, and there they'll take him, they'll try him, and they'll hang him. He's, he's a dead man walking at that point. And so the, the crew gets him, and they, they, they wrestle him, and they tie him to the mast, and he's standing there at the mast, tied to the mast, but he's still screaming orders. I'm not done here. I'm still your captain. You need to do this. You need to do that. And the crew, because they've respected him and been under his authority for a time, have a tendency to still want to listen to his voice. But, but Miles Stanford says we don't have to do that anymore. We can say, no, you, the Holy Spirit has pinned you to the cross, and I don't have to listen to you. I'm not obligated to listen to you any longer. I don't have to obey you. And we can just lean into the Spirit and let Jesus our captain, our new captain, lead us in, in righteousness. So we're dead to the flesh, but we're also still dying to the flesh. That's why it has to say, it, Romans 8.28, I love this, says that God causes all things to work together for our good. In order, uh, uh, if we love him and we're called according to his purpose, for he has predestined that we be conformed to the image of his son. The conforming process The being conformed from one degree of glory to another means the Holy Spirit's at work in our lives, making us like Jesus. We don't just get saved and suddenly we're like Jesus. That's a process. But as far as the Father's concerned, and as far as Jesus, our high priest, is concerned, we're perfect forever. So that's that we're covered. That's when so so I'm gonna talk about sin here in a minute. When we sin and we struggle and we stumble, we don't have to be ashamed in the presence of God. We don't have to, we don't have to run back here in the bushes with Adam and Eve and say, hey, you got an extra fig, fig leaf because I'm really feeling naked right now because I just sinned like you guys did. We have to do that because Jesus has us covered, literally. We don't have to run away from Jesus when we sin. We run to Jesus when we sin because he's got it covered. Okay, and I'm going to explain how and why in a moment. Number three, we, die, we have died to and we are dying to sin. Read Romans 6, man. Read it really slowly. It says over and over again, you died to sin. He starts out, you know, when, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's the end of, of Romans 5. Jesus has become our righteousness. And so where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he asks the obvious question at the beginning of Romans 6. So shall we go on sinning that grace should increase or abound? And he's like, no way. Heck no. You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? And the first time I ever read that, it just, you know, I, I died to sin. I just sinned. So I'm reading the word. But we have died to sin in Christ. 
In Christ Jesus, you're dead to sin. And that's why in, in, in verse uh, 11 of chapter 6, it says, Therefore, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Sin shall no longer be your master. You died to sin, but I just sinned yesterday. It doesn't, does your sin yesterday make the word like false or a lie? Is God a liar? Because the word of God was inspired by him. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and when he said you're dead to sin, is that a lie? I mean, which are we going to believe? Are we going to believe our experience over God's word? Or are we going to say, you know what, there's something wrong in my experience because it's not lining up with the truth of his word. It's the latter, see, guys. It's the latter. We died to sin. We did. And it, it takes decades as we hold on to that in faith, as we hold on to that promise, it takes decades, literally, for God to work that into our lives as an experiential reality. That's what I like to call it when I'm praying for that. Like, Lord, make this an experiential, experiential reality in my life because I know it's true, but I want it to be 100% true for me in my experience here. Now, let me just share this with you. Another great quote from Miles Stanford. He says, um, he's talking about how we're to enter God's rest by faith. The people of Israel refused to enter God's rest because they didn't believe. Remember they got up to Kadesh Barnea and God was about to take them into the promised land and they sent spies into the promised land and they saw that there were giants there and they came back and, and 10 of the 12 spies says, we can't go in because... There's giants in the land, and they, they'll destroy us. They'll, they'll kill us. And God has just brought us into this de desert to kill us. After all he went through with Pharaoh and the plagues and the, dead, and the Red Sea, opening the Red Sea, they cross over and they say, well, our conclusion is God just brought us out here to kill us. Now, that's a lot of trouble to go to to get it. They could, he could have just let the Egyptians kill him. I mean, that is really bad logic. That's an unrenewed mind, guys. And I just want to tell you something. God is not mad at you. He's not angry with you. I don't care if you just now sin. He is not angry with you. He loves you, and he wants to take you into the promised land. And our promised land is the fullness of the Spirit, the experiential reality of Christ living his life through us, the experiential reality of victory, ongoing victory over sin, not sinless perfection, but ongoing consistent victory over the sins that used to, to plague us. He wants to give us victory. That's where he's taking us. The Holy Spirit is patiently moving us towards that goal. And it can happen, guys. It can happen in this life. And so, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. So the people of Israel didn't go in because of their unbelief and their disobedience. But he says, you can still go in. There's still a peace and rest of God that you can enter. He says, therefore, labor to enter that rest. That's kind of a weird oxymoron. Labor to enter God's rest. Now, let me explain that. In just reading this quote, it is faith that receives from the hand of God and we are not to give up just because the struggle and labor phase does not immediately produce the prize of entering full rest in Christ and complete victory over sin. And do not forget, Hebrews 4 says that, that faith begins in labor and ends in God's rest. 
It starts out in labor. It ends in God's rest. But what are we laboring for? Are we gritting our teeth and saying, oh, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to. No, no, no. That's not, that's, that doesn't work. The first stage of faith is always the battle of taking hold of some promise or truth of God, which is not real in our experience yet. But by the will, heart, and mind, we declare it to be ours in spite of appearances. I've said a thousand times I am dead to sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus, and I've still sinned. But we, we do not appear to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. But we are told to believe it, and so we dare believe it and declare it so. A thousand times our faith may fail. Unbelief says nonsense. But the labor of faith means that we deliberately return to the work of believing God's promise over our experience. That's the labor. That's what we're to work on, is believing God's word and God's truth over my puny experience. Once again, we persist in believing and declaring the truth of the promise. And as we follow the steps of those who, by faith and patience, have inherited the promises. Do you hear that? That is a great phrase. By faith and patience have inherited the promises, divine things begin to happen within us. The Spirit works with our faith as He is doing all the time, and our faith gives way to experience. Labor is replaced by rest. Isn't that wonderful? We just continue like Abraham in faith and against all hope. In faith, Abraham believed. And so became the father of many nations. He looked at his body as good as dead. He looked at the the deadness of Sarah's womb. He looked at the impossibility of that promise being fulfilled. And yet he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God. For 26 years or however long it was, he hung on to that promise that God was going to give him a son. And through that son, nations would come. And so he says he did not waver in unbelief regarding the promise of God, but, but continued in faith, was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, and so became the father of many nations because he, he believed that God was able to do that which he promised. He, God is able to do that which he's promised. God is able to do that which he's promised, okay? Never forget that. Never move from that. So we died to sin, but we are dying to sin. We're in the process of dying to sin. And, and every day we're making progress, even though it feels like maybe we've had bad days when we feel like we've made no promise and we're going backwards. That's even progress. And by the way, don't run away from God when you sin, please. Please don't do that. Run straight to Jesus. Every time you blow it, run straight to Jesus because Jesus is your life He is your righteousness. He's taking care of your sin. There is no reason to hide in the bushes with Adam and Eve any longer. Fourthly, we have died to and we are dying to the law. You know, we were never subjected to the Jewish law. Gentiles were basically just lawless. Jews are lawbreakers. We're just lawless. And we're all under the same sentence of death because we're either lawless or lawbreakers. Either way, the wages of sin is death. So we're all under the death sentence, right? And so <laughs> Jesus comes along in, in uh, Sermon on the Mount, and uh, he says, hey, guys, by the way, uh, I'm here, and uh, you're going to think that I came to abolish the law, and you're going to think that, you know, that, that 
you know, in some of what I'm saying, that the law doesn't matter anymore. He's like, that's absolutely the opposite of what's true. The law is never going to change. The law is here, and the law has to be fulfilled. It's, it, it has to be filled full, and I'm going to do that for you. He didn't say it in the Sermon on the Mount. He basically, what, what he did on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, you know, the, the, the law is like the high jump set about, you know, six feet, eight inches, or whatever it is. I don't know what the world record is now, but uh, it's up there. But in high school, it's like, you know, between six and seven feet. We're going to, you know, that's how the law is. And it's really difficult to, to keep the letter of the law, to clear the law, to clear that bar. You know, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do this. There's, there's like, I don't know, 613, I think it is, uh, Jewish laws. And, but there's the moral law that talks about, you know, not, not uh, lying, stealing, killing, you know, all those things. And so Jesus comes in and he says, well, you've heard it said, you know, that you should not... Um, you should not uh, commit adultery. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise that bar from you know, 6 feet 8 inches to 21 feet. And uh, it's at pole vault level now because if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Ooh, it, it, It's like, bam. It's like if you've done it in your heart, you've done it. So don't do it. So we've raised the bar from actually doing it to just don't even think about it. And you don't get a pole. You don't get a pole. you got to clear the bar just by jumping, just by, by doing the right behavior. But, and only this time it's from your heart. You have to do this out of your heart. You don't, it's not, not just outwardly, but you got to do it inwardly as well. And by the way, you know how it says, uh, do not murder? Well, I say to you, if anyone is angry in his heart with his brother, he's committed murder in his heart. Boop. No pole. Just you got to clear that. 21 feet. No pole. Good luck with that. And then he says a couple other things that are, oh, actually three things that are really disturbing. Mark referred to this recently in one of his sermons. He says, uh, first of all, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Oh, there's an easy thing to do, right? That's at the end of all these, you know, things he says, all these rules and stuff. You know, you've heard it said, but now I say, and by the way, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Number two, he says that if you don't do the will of God then you're pretty much uh, out. You, you know, I mean, it, it, you live your life and you do all these great things, and at the end of your life you say, hey, didn't I do this, that, and the other thing? And it's like, well, you didn't do the will of my Father, so no go, you're, you're no good. I, don't know, I never knew you away from me, you evildoer. And the third thing he says is, now that you've heard these words of mine, if you put them into practice, if you clear the 21 feet, you know, pole vault level, you make it, then you have built your house upon the rock. And when the storms come, beat against the house, man, you're going to be fine because you're, you're built on a foundation. Now, this is still true. This is not like he's not joking with us about this. This is, this is really true. We've got to build our, our lives on the foundation of Christ. But it's how we keep the law, not that we keep the law or not keep the law, okay? And so... Um, he says, if you don't do that, you're like the man who built his house on the sand with no foundation, and when the wind and storm comes, it, it just destroys that house. People walk away from there feeling really good about themselves. Man, that's easy. Wow. I'm just really glad he made the law not only difficult, but now impossible to keep. And if I don't do that, now I've just built my house on a, the sand, and I'm going to be destroyed. I mean, I honestly think Jesus was just trying to say, Guys, in your own strength, you can't pull this off. Because we can't. 
We cannot. Jeremiah said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the one I made when the Israelites decided not to have a relationship with me, but just tell us the rules. Moses, you go up there and talk to that mean, scary old God that wanted to kill us. And it's scaring us to death with his lightning and thunder on this mountain that's quaking and shaking. And we're scared of him. So why don't you go get the rules and bring them back to us and tell, them, tell us what the rules are. And we'll just keep them and everything will be okay. God said, okay, if you just want a list of rules, here they are. You know, 613 things you've got to do in order to have a relationship with me. Good luck with that. And he tells, he tells Moses... And to tell the people of Israel, when you enter the land, as they're about to cross over into the land of promise, now after 40 years wandering in the desert, he says, hey, by the way, uh, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. And if you don't do these things, you'll be cursed. And he talks about all the terrible things that will happen if they don't do them. And he says, by the way, I already know you're not going to be able to do them. <laughs> good news, right? Oh, the, the, the old covenant is such good news. That's why the writer of Hebrews said it was, uh, it was an inferior, now obsolete covenant that has to be replaced by the new covenant in Christ. And so the law, whether it's the law of Moses, it's the Sermon on the Mount now, or if it's just our consciences that are quickened by the Holy Oh, I meant to tell you this. When he says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, he says, I will write my law in your hearts and on your minds. And I will be your God and you will be my people. That's basically the Holy Spirit coming inside and writing the law on our hearts. He's now the law inside of us. The law of love is fulfilled in Christ. The law of obedience, the law of, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The only way that we can do that, the only way that we can keep these, these simple laws of, of love and doing unto others is, you know, is, is through the Holy Spirit inside of us doing this through us. The law, whether it's, whether it's our conscience, the Sermon on the Mount, the, the law of Moses, it's just chocolate. It's like, it's like a mirror that shows us we have chocolate on our face, but there's nothing it can do for us to get that chocolate off our face. It just shows us how bad we are, how wrong we are. And then the other thing that the law tends to do, it tends to be like the sign, and you've seen on you know, different places, college campuses, whatever, that says, keep off the grass. So, so when you see that sign, what do you want to do? You either want to walk on it or smoke it. I mean, that's, it's one of, you know, the power. Of, Paul actually said the power of sin is the law. Wow, really? And he, he expounds on that in Romans 7. Fortunately, also in Romans 7, he says something else about the law, and I'll get to that in a minute. But let me tell you about my experience with the law of if you, you know, You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say that if you are angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. I, I lived a pretty good life. I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I didn't have a lot of a people that I was angry with and had bitterness towards and that sort of thing. But I got into seminary, and um, uh, my pastor at the United Methodist Church there in, in Danville, Kentucky, where I was attending while I was attending seminary, just 15 miles away, I, would, I still continue to go to church in Danville where I'd worked as a personnel manager before. And um, my, my pastor, uh, Pastor David, called me one day, and this was in the middle of my first semester at Asbury. And he said, Miss so-and-so passed away, and in her will, she left a $2,000 scholarship for seminary students. 
And she's like, you're the only seminary student that we have. And so I just wanted you to know that there's a scholarship and it's free. It's just your money. And we're going to put it in an account and, and it's yours whenever you need it. Well, you know, there was something in me that, you know, the way I was raised that didn't say, hey, you know what? Why don't I just go ahead and take that and put it in my bank account? And I'll just go ahead and take that. Thank you very much. And I'll have it ready for next semester. I, I, just, I just didn't feel right about doing that. And so I said, okay, David, Pastor David, thank you so much for... Well, <laughs> two months later, Pastor David got sent to another church. And Pastor... I'll call him... Uh, Jesse James. Okay, Pastor Jesse James comes in, and, and, uh, and so at, I came back from uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where I'd spent the summer as a, as a temporary youth pastor, and I, I called him up, and I said, hey, Pastor Jesse James, I said, um, uh, Pastor David told me that there was a $2,000 scholarship in the bank that I could use at any point, and uh, I want to go ahead and use that to you know, pay my tuition and buy my books and that sort of thing. $2,000 in the early 80s was a lot of money, by the way. It may not be so much now, but it was a lot of money back in that day. And he said, well, I'm not aware of this. Uh, let me look into this and I'll get back to you. So I said, sure, fine. You know, I, I mean, he's new. He doesn't, he's only been there like three months and, and he didn't know. And so he called me back and he said, uh, Mr. Haney, he said, uh, I've looked into this and yes, there is $2,000 in a bank account. And it is for scholarships, but I can't find anywhere where it says it's, it's a gift that you can have. He says, uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. He says, we will loan that money to you at 5% interest, but when you graduate, you'll have to pay it back. And I said, sir, Pastor David told me that it was gifted to me by this lady. It was a scholarship that was to be given to, to a seminary student. Since I'm the only seminary student, he said the whole thing would, was be, would be mine and, and it was a gift. It, 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 didn't, it wasn't a loan. It was a gift. He said, well, Pastor David isn't here anymore, and I'm pastor now, and I've looked into this, and if you want the $2,000, it's a loan at 5%, or just you can't have it. I was furious. I was absolutely furious. I was like, Pastor Jesse James had gone to some liberal school, and he didn't like Asbury, and he, he was already against this whole thing, and, and it was like, you know, this was just his way of just being mean. I mean, it really was, because there was evidence there. He could have called David Hilton and found out, but he's, he's like, no, I'm not doing that. I said, call Pastor David. He's like, nope, he he's not here anymore. I'm pastor here now. I'm not calling him. He could have called him and found out. The whole thing. Nope, not calling him. Unforgiveness locked into my heart. I got angry with this guy. I was furious. I was absolutely furious. I mean, I would find myself with my, knot, with my stomach in a knot. I would find myself, you know, like, like having nightmares of punching this guy in the face. And, you know, just I was just so angry. And, and um, I, couldn't, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get around it. And so finally, I had to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I am really angry at Pastor Jesse James. I feel like you robbed me. Jesse James robbed me. Anyway, it's really clever. So, so I remember, uh, even though I was living in Asbury, I went back to my old apartment. There was this, there was this trail that went into the, into the woods. And, and so I went over there, and I parked my car, and I walked into the woods. And I'm like, Lord. And he's like, Neil, 
Bad things happen to people all the time. People get hurt by other people. And what have I asked you to do? I've asked you to forgive. He said, if you'll forgive, if you'll choose to forgive Pastor Jesse James, I will work that in your heart. Hardest thing I ever did. I said through gritted teeth, okay, in obedience to you, I choose to forgive Pastor Jesse James. I walked away from there, and honestly, the Holy Spirit did something. He did a miracle in my heart, and I was able to forgive that man, and my anger was gone. I got here, and one day that $2,000, no one had contacted me. That thing was hanging over my head, and I finally called the church, and I talked to the secretary, and I said, hey, here's the situation. And I just told her what happened. I wasn't, like, I didn't badmouth Pastor Jesse James. I just said, you know, David Hilton told me it was mine, then he said it wasn't, and, and she said, well, let me look into it, and I'll get back to you. And she called me back, and she said, uh, she said Neil, uh, we can't find any record of anything. We can't find a record of there was a bank account. We can't find a record of a loan. He said, she said, just forget about it. Don't worry about it. I never had to pay that $2,000 back. That's how good God is. But that, that's how we can't fulfill the law in our own strength. I was so angry. But, but the Lord said, if you'll choose, if you'll just take that step to, to forgive, I'll work that, the, the, the unforgiveness and anger part out of you. So we've died to the law. It says in Romans 7 that but like a woman who, who was married to a man and, and she, if, she, if she left him for another man, she'd be committing adultery as long as he was alive. But, but if he died, she was free. And, and, and Paul says, you died with Christ. And in doing so, you died to the law. You're no longer married to the law. Now you're married to a new Man, you're married to Christ, and his spirit is in you to work the works of God. Now, let me, let me explain what, what Jesus has done for us. In fulfilling the law, he did two things. He, um, he was the last Adam. He was our, our representative. Just like the first Adam plunged us into sin, he plunged us into righteousness in this way. He did this. From the time he was baptized, which was an act of obedience because he was baptized, he didn't have sin to be washed away. He was baptized as us. Do you understand? And every time he obeyed God through the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he never gave in to temptation and sin, right on through to all the things that happened to him, all the threats that were made on him, he obeyed the Father, obeyed the Father, obeyed the Father, obeyed the Father. And so as us, he fulfilled the law by keeping it to perfection. The Mosaic law, the moral law, every law, his own conscience, he, he, the Father's will, he fulfilled the law for us, as us, as the last Adam, as our representative and then right at the last minute, he switched places with us and took our penalty of death for having broken the law or having been lawless as, as Gentiles. Do you understand what I'm saying? He kept it perfectly as us, and then he died as us on the cross, not just to forgive our sins, but he died to the law, to sin, to everything. He died He died in in our penalty for breaking the law in our place. And so in him, we went to him 
went, went with him to the cross, to the grave, and through to the resurrection. And now, on the other side of the resurrection, we're not obligated to keep any law. The Holy Spirit lives in us to conform us to the image of Christ so that we keep the law of love perfectly. The last thing I'll say is that we died to the, to the world. And we are dying to the world. The world is, is not the earth. There's a difference. The, the earth is the planet. The world is the cosmos. It's the, the world system that we live in. And from, from the time that Adam and Eve fell until, you know, like Cain built a city, he walked out of the presence of God and he went and built a city called Nod, and, or in the land of Nod, and he named it Enoch after his son, and he built a city that was separate from and, and got its meaning, value, and purpose apart from God. Everything that happened in Enoch, in that city, was built in rebellion against God. And, and, and from that point on, human beings have tried to build a city that, has, that gets its meaning, value, and purpose apart from God. That's, that's the world that we live in. A world that wants to get its meaning, value, and purpose apart from God. And, you know, the book of Revelation, I'm, I'm almost done, guys. The book of Revelation is a tale of two cities. It's a tale of fallen Babylon, a, a, a city of, of people, of men, run by men that are in rebellion against God. Read Psalm 2, and it trying to derive meaning, value, and purpose from everything in this world apart from God. The other city is New Jerusalem. You and I are New Jerusalem. The church, the church triumphant, those already in heaven and those militant here on the earth, we're all apart. We all make up the New Jerusalem, the city of God. Your citizenship, you're like Paul. He was, his citizenship was he was a Jew, but he was also a Roman. His Roman citizenship is like your American citizenship. You derive certain rights and privileges from being an American, like the right to vote, for example. But you're not, your citizenship is really not here. Paul never really considered himself a member of the Roman Empire unless it was to his advantage to advance the gospel. But the writer of Hebrews says that we are citizens of another, another city. Not the fallen Babylon, but the new Jerusalem, which will last forever. The bride prepared for her husband, Jesus' bride, that will inherit the earth forever. And so, and so we're not, we, we've died, Paul said, I died to the world. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy watching Ohio State football. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy going out to dinner at a restaurant that serves alcohol or, or you know, I mean, just, I, the world is the world. And we live in this world. And we can't divorce ourselves from this world. We can be in it, but not of it, of course. But that's the whole point. I keep spitting. I can see in these lights. You know, just, that's why no one sits on these front seats. It's like, you want a shower? Just come and sit right here. Just bring a bar of soap, and you'll be good. Um, but we're in this world, but we're not. We don't allow ourselves to be formed by the meaning, purpose, and values of this world that we live in. Our values, our meaning, and purpose is formed by our relationship with Christ. Christ in us. And so, guys, here it is. You have died. 
You died, to the, you, you died out of the old Adam. You're now in Christ forever. You're perfected forever. But you've died to your flesh. You're not obligated to walk in it, but you probably will for a while until the Holy Spirit works that out of you. You're dead to sin, but there are certain sins that are going to plague you until you're able to, until he's able to work that out of you in his work inside of you. You're dead to the law, but you're still going to violate your conscience at times, and you're still going to feel guilty. But you don't have to run and hide back here with, with Adam and Eve in the bushes. You, can, you don't have to put on fig leaves. You're covered in the blood of Christ. You're covered in the life of Christ. You belong to him. And you're in this fallen, broken world, and we've just experienced this week what that's like. Political parties. I mean, my goodness. But you're not defined by being a Democrat or Republican. Steve Fry, where are you? Okay, Linda, could you go help the person that just came in with our food for the membership class? They're trying to, they're just walk, walking down the hallway there. Thanks. So, <laughs> the world just invaded our church with pizza. <sighs> Guys, don't get frustrated and discouraged with yourself. God's not done with you. If I, if I were being really facetious and we weren't out of time, I'd have you stand up and sing this little song with me. God's still working on me to make me what he wants to be. It took just a day to make the moon and the stars da, 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 and Jupiter and Mars. Da, 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 da. God's still working on me because he is. And he's not frustrated with you in the process. Like the old clockmaker, he's in love with you because he made you and you got bent and broken and smelly stuff on you and you're, you don't work right. Maybe you don't work at all. But he's got you on his workbench and he is pouring over you to make you what you were supposed to be. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about our church, visit vineyardnorthridge.org or find us on social media at Vineyard Northridge.